Oh, nice one. So, today we do something of a shift, moving from ultimate bodhicitta to the cultivation of relative bodhicitta, which is generally known as bodhicitta. And so, for the meditation, what I'd like to do now is, instead of going over the practice we did this morning, which we'll have another chance for tomorrow morning and so on, uh, rather do the practice that is directly related to the text, to, to, to the aphorism uh, that we're about to um, look into right after this meditation session. So please find a comfortable position. Um, yeah, supine is good. Supine is fine. Yeah. Overall, I know for myself, I prefer to be sitting for, because what we'll be doing now is entering into the practice of Donglen, which I'll explain later. We'll, we'll, we'll do the guided meditation, talk about, about it later. For myself, I know I prefer to do this one sitting upright, but if you're uncomfortable, if I were uncomfortable, then I would prefer not to doing it, uh, sitting upright, but rather be comfortable and lie down. So either way you like, um, but let's find a, one, one posture that is comfortable, and we'll go right into the practice. <coughs> Now, as always, let's begin by settling body, speech, and mind in their natural states. And for a little while, calm the mind as an act of loving kindness for yourself. Calm and soothe the mind with mindfulness of breathing in any of the three ways that you find most appropriate, most helpful.
thus far in our meditations, focusing on the various methods of shamatha, we've been arousing and sustaining, above all, the flow of cognizance, of knowing, whether of the breath, of the mind, of awareness. In this practice, we do indeed draw from this faculty of consciousness, this aspect of consciousness, but we highlight now that quality of luminosity, which implies also creativity, using the power of imagination, of thought, of memory. As we venture first into the meditative cultivation of compassion, this being an aspiration that we may find freedom from suffering and the causes of suffering. So I invite you to bring to mind some individual whom you know, or it could be some group, some collective of individuals, perhaps you know only by way of the media, but an individual or many who are suffering, for any one of a number of reasons, whether because of war, of famine, of poverty, of old age, of sickness, of mental distress. Let your attention rose until it settles. Again, it could be one or many, but for this simplicity of language, I'll speak as if you're focusing on one. Attend to this person now closely. This person who's going through great difficulty, physical or mental or both. Turn to this aphorism, for the moment what we attend to is reality. Attend to the reality of this person's situation, this person's struggle, this person's challenges. Tend not only to the suffering this person experiences, but also the underlying causes. Sometimes the suffering is aroused by craving and attachment. Other times more explicitly by anger and resentment. Other times simply out of unknowing, ignorance and delusion. Attend to suffering and its causes and attend closely the person who is experiencing. And now move more closely, exercising your imagination to the best of your ability, knowing full well that it's limited. Imagine being this person, looking out upon the world through this person's eyes, 
Now return to your own perspective, attending to this person as a fellow human being. Each in-breath arouses aspirations of compassion. The yearning, may you be free of the suffering and the causes of suffering. Symbolically, imagine the suffering and its causes in the form of a dark cloud, just a darkness veiling, shrouding this person. Each in-breath arouse the yearning. May you be free. each in-breath, again symbolically using your imagination, with each in-breath imagine that cloud dissipating, vanishing into space, and imagine this person finding relief breath by breath. Let your attention rove like a bee going from flower to flower in a garden. Let your attention rove from one person to another to a group of people here and there. And we need not limit ourselves to human beings. Animals, too, suffer much as we do. And with each in-breath arouses aspiration with the visualization.
and return to the cultivation of loving kindness, which once again is not simply an emotion or a feeling, but is an aspiration that we may find happiness and the causes of happiness. Attend now, bring to mind someone who is very dear to you, for whom you feel genuine affection, a sense of closeness and warmth. and especially to the lovable qualities of that person. Now, if you will, symbolically imagine your own pristine awareness, that primordially pure dimension of your own being, your Buddha nature. Imagine it symbolically as a radiant, incandescent orb of white light, very small, in the center of your heart, the heart chakra, symbolizing the purity, symbolizing the wellspring of all virtues, loving kindness, compassion, and all other virtues. The very essence of your being. And with every outbreath arouse the aspiration. May you find happiness and the causes of happiness. And as you do so, imagine rays of light, a cascade of light, emerging forth from this orb at your heart, embracing, suffusing, saturating this person. With every outbreath. With every outbreath, again, drawing on your imagination, moving into that realm of possibility. Imagine the person to whom you are attending, finding the joy that he or she seeks while cultivating its causes. 
each out-breath, experiencing a deeper and deeper sense of fulfillment. Once again, let your attention rove. Alighting it upon another person, practicing in the same way, and then moving on.
release all imaginings and all aspirations. And let your awareness come to rest in its own nature, still and clear. So, of course, now we're moving to the cultivation of relative bodhicitta. And largely speaking, there are two approaches to this, which, once again, are very deeply complementary. There's the approach that is most commonly taught, and for a very good reason. It's accessible, it's inviting, it's practical. And along the lines that we've just done here, of cultivating loving-kindness, compassion, and then moving towards the actual they say, aspiration, cultivation of bodhicitta itself, which combines, as we see, the loving kindness and compassion. So moving on from there. And so in the Sutrayana approach, and just generally speaking, we speak of the two wings to enlightenment. In fact, there's a quote from the Buddha, a very close paraphrase, actually. Wisdom without compassion is bondage, and compassion without wisdom is bondage. The term actually, instead of compassion, is skillful means. So without skillful means, but the very essence of skillful means is compassion, so it's a good paraphrase. Very important point. And so this emphasizes, once again, one of my favorite words, balance. And that is, as we're practicing the, shifa, the, the shamatha, and then especially going into vipassana, vipassana, ultimate bodhicitta, it's ever so important to balance it with the cultivation of the heart cultivation of empathy, of love and kindness and compassion. And then there is a balanced way. And so one is going in and out, venturing into ultimate truth, coming back to relative, ultimate relative. That's the classic procedure. Oh yeah. Back live again. So, there's the 
developmental approach, where we're cultivating, cultivating qualities for which we definitely have a potential. The potential here, as in boundless loving kindness, is that one's heart is equally open to all sentient beings without barrier, without, without differentiation, without bias, right? And so we all have the potential for such loving kindness. Christians would call it unconditional love, very nice word. And the Buddhists call it boundless loving kindness, and then boundless compassion, that we feel compassion, if anything, even more for the evildoers of the world, even more so, if anything, than those who are victims of their evil. Clearly, compassion for both. And so there's this way of cultivating, cultivating, breaking down the barriers through the cultivation of the four measurables, for example, and experiencing states, degrees of magnitude of loving kindness, compassion, were never experienced before. So it's a developmental approach of generating, cultivating these qualities. And it's very, very meaningful. And there's another approach, too. And that is, if we look at this very streamlined approach of Dzogchen, as taught in the various mind traces of Dujun Lingba, revealed by Padmasambhava, when we trim it back and say, and we just ask of the text, what is essential? I mean, there are many, many practices. In the Vajra essence, wide array of practices, stage of generation, stage of completion, a lot of practices are there. But if we ask, is it necessary in order to achieve enlightenment, is it necessary to engage in all of those practices taught throughout 400 pages of the Vajra essence? The answer is no. I mean, the text says it in so many words. And say, okay, well, which ones are the utterly indispensable ones? If you're following the breath of Dzogchen, which ones are the ones you, can't, you just can't leave out? It turns out to be only four. And it's shamatha, it's vipassana, it's tekchut, to break through to rikpa, and it's a tutgel, to bring forth the full, all the qualities, to manifest all the qualities of your own Buddha nature, or pristine awareness. Those four. Shamatha, vipassana, the breakthrough and the direct crossing over. And then one might wonder, wait a minute, something really important is missing there. Where's bodhicitta? Where's loving kindness? Where's compassion? This seems like a very austere brilliant wisdom path, but where's, you know, where's the balance? Where's the balance? Because if you've studied Sutrayana, you know it's going in and out. It's a balance between ultimate and relative, between wisdom and compassion. Where's that? It seems like it's all wisdom. And Padmasambhava answers this in the Vajra Essence. And he said, if, you're, if you realize ultimate bodhicitta, if you realize rikpa, you break through to rikpa, this is ultimate bodhicitta. And relative bodhicitta arises spontaneously out of ultimate bodhicitta. You don't need to look outside. He said you don't need to now contrive some dualistic compassion for another person as if this person is different from yourself and go through a lot of conceptualization and visualization. You don't have to try. You don't have to force it. You don't try to try to cultivate it. Tap into your Buddha nature and bodhicitta just comes out, springs out like a geyser spontaneously. So it's going right through the center, and then the realization of emptiness the real, and the realization of bodhicitta spring from that center. So, and in fact, in terms of realization of rikpa itself, I think I've mentioned it, but I'll elaborate just a little tiny bit more. The classic approach, the classic approach to Dzogchen, Dzogchen or the great perfection, is upon having really stabilized the mind, have established your meditative equipoise, then going for vipassana. So again, like that in, that in that dream analogy, being in the midst of an unlucid dream, getting your mind sane, good and balanced, living an ethical way of life, and then go for it and investigate, probe into the nature of all the phenomena you're experiencing, your own identity, your body, your mind, 
all the phenomena around you, the people, the sentient being, and investigate, 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 so the, until you see that nothing there exists by its own inherent nature. Nothing is, nothing is intrinsic. Nothing is absolutely there from its own side, neither objectively nor subjectively. So this would be the classic approach. And now we're speaking of this as a met, in the metaphor of being in a non-lucid dream, right? But within the non-lucid dream, really coming to the sense, having fathomed the emptiness of inherent nature, which means then that all the phenomena you're experiencing are arising in a manner of dependently related events, arising relative to your conceptual designations. In other words, you are a full-fledged observer participant in the reality you're experiencing. And when you go into deep meditative equipoise in the realization of emptiness, all phenomena vanish. They vanish. And it's not because, it's not, it's not for the same reason that phenomena, you know, the world around us, vanishes when you go deep into samadhi, when your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness and all that appears to you is a substrate. And you go into then the jhanas and you go more and more rarefied, you go into the formless realm, more and more rarefied, totally withdrawn from this world of phenomena, of appearances. It's not that way. It's not that you're withdrawing. That is the track for the, the samadhi path. But when you go into very deep non-conceptual, especially if it's a direct, unmediated realization of emptiness, it's not a withdrawal like that. But rather it is through seeing the emptiness of phenomena in a non-conceptual fashion such that there is no conceptual imputation at all. You've stopped conceptually designating. And because you've stopped conceptually designating, nothing appears to you. Again, it's not through withdrawal. It's simply realization of emptiness and a, a release of conceptual designation. I mean, the astonishing and mind-boggling hypothesis of the Madhyamaka is that Phenomena exist independent upon conceptual designation, which means in the absence of conceptual designation, they do not exist. Now, it's not just a make-believe world. It, I mean, I'm not going to give a whole Dharma talk now on Madhyamaka, but that's one of the crucial factors. For, I'll give it a little bit more, because it's not a make-believe make world that anything you kind of believe in, oh, I believe in Santa Claus, oh, Santa Claus exists. It's not like that. Okay. For conditioned phenomena, What's, what does it mean? This is important. It relates actually to compassion. For com the, the world we're experiencing of conditioned phenomena, all of these, all of us, we exist as dependently related events or a matrix of uh, dependently related events, which means we are arising dependently on things. So on the one hand, we're arising independent upon prior causing conditions. That's, that's obvious. Well, we already knew that one, okay? But that's important. Without the prior cause and distance for this computer, there'd be no computer here. Right? So that's, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. But, and that would be a sequential dependence that is independence upon prior causes and conditions, then subsequently a particular consequence arises. Right? But there's more to it than now. Now we go more subtle than that. And that is this computer, just take as an example the laptop here. It has many components. Right? And the components exist simultaneously with the computer. You don't have first the computer and uh, first the components, then the computer later. They exist simultaneously, right? But, if the but, but they're also not equivalent. The computer, the computer is not the same as, not identical to 
any of its single components, nor simply a whole bunch of components thrown together. It, it's, it depended upon them, but it's not equivalent to them. So this is a simultaneous dependence, the dependence of the whole on the parts. But of course, you don't speak of the part like this. You, don't speak, you can't speak of the, the part of a computer without there being a computer. You can't say there's a computer screen without there being a computer. So it's a mutual interdependence. The whole depends upon the parts, but you can't speak of the parts existing unless there's a whole that has them as the parts. So that's the second type of dependence. The dependence of the whole upon its constituent parts. That also makes good sense. The subtle one, the profound one, the mind-boggling one is that for the computer to be there, there needs to be the conceptual designation of the, of the computer. Without that, there's no computer. So I won't elaborate that, I won't try to defend that and you know, debate it and so forth, but this is an important preface. That again, Lamrimba, he was the yogi that I lived with for one year as we had this one-year shamatha retreat 25 years ago, who had done a lot of meditation on emptiness. And he said, when you go into the realization of emptiness, all phenomena vanish. You're not conceptually designating anything. They vanish for you. And then you return to the world of multiplicity. So coming back to that analogy of the dream, the classic sequence is stabilize your mind, make your mind very serviceable, shamadu would be good, and then gain that type of realization of emptiness of all the phenomena within the dream, right? That everything you see is not really there from its own side. And you're not really here from your own side. And you go into non-conceptual realization of that emptiness, then the whole dream vanishes. And then you come out of meditative equipoise and this spontaneously, you, as you attend to the phenomena around you and your own presence, everything has a dream-like quality. Everything appears to be like an illusion. And that is, they, although they appear to be from their own side, you know they're not. Just like looking at a mirage. If you know it's a mirage, boy, it really seems like a lake over there. But if you know it's a mirage, you know there's no lake over there. But it certainly looks like one, right? So this would be the classic sequence. Your samatha, your, your pashana. And so in between sessions, as you attend to the phenomenon in the dream, and of course you don't know you're dreaming, you say, wow, this is really dreamlike. And it's, boy, I'm really following Atisha's practice. I'm really acting as if I were an illusory being because there's really nobody here inherently substantially existent. So you say, wow, I can really practice this, what Atisha taught. I'm viewing all phenomena as if they are dreams. They're really, it's a lot like a dream. And I really am a lot like an illusory being. So good. And then within the dream, you encounter a Dzogchen master and say, well, you're, you're really close here. I got some news for you, though. This is not like a dream. Where's that sandal? You smack somebody on the... This is not like a dream. This is a dream. And then bah, you break through. And you break through that even that conventional sense of identity of being the person in the dream. You're no longer reifying it. You've realized the emptiness of your inherent nature of being that person in the dream. But now you're no longer even conventionally located there. Not even conventionally. You've just become lucid. And then there's just this radical shift. You have broken through. You've broken through the dream mentality, the dream even conventionally existing. And now you're viewing that dream from the perspective of one who is awake. One of you shared just recently your recent experience of being lucid in a dream and found it was quite remarkable that while you were dreaming, you had access to all your knowledge that you had in the waking state. 
you were remembering teachings, remembering this and so forth. And so you had a very big database outside of the little, you know, 20 minutes that you'd been alive within the dream. Right? That little minuscule figure who's going to be dead very soon, you know, a matter of minutes, and that dream's going to be finished. But suddenly, whoa, you're no longer inside that at all. You're viewing the whole thing, everything. You're seeing everything as an effulgence of your awareness. And you have full access to your knowledge in the waking state. Well, there's the classic approach. That was the analogy, of course. And now the classic approach, as I've said a number of times, shamatha, and then in the waking state, realize the emptiness of all phenomena. And then get your pointing out instruction. Right? So that's classic. But there is another way for those who are gifted, sharp faculties and that kind of thing. And that is, it is possible to gain a realization of rikpa prior to having realized emptiness. I think this happens in, in Zen sometimes. It does happen in Dzogchen, in Mahamudra. By whatever circumstances, the pointing out instructions, something happens. Or resting your mind, merging your mind with space for three weeks. And you make a breakthrough right there with no sequential step by step by step, just three weeks, merge your mind with space, and then boom, you break right through to Rikpa. In that instantaneous shift, like the prince who suddenly gets it, suddenly breaks through his identity of being the beggar, the homeless person. And without step by step by step, he suddenly just, he comes out of his amnesia. He's, oh, wham, in, in, in an instant, he recognizes, oh yes, conventionally, I had been identifying with that which I was not and therefore conceived of myself as being a beggar. And now I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that was all make-believe because I, now I know who I am, right? Now I know who I am. I'm awake. I know I'm king. And where's my throne? You know? So there's the other approach. And you can see the strong analogy. This is why I love it so much, the analogy of the dream. A lot of you have had lucid dreams, but without going step by step by step, achieving shamatha within your dream and then realizing emptiness within your dream and then finally becoming lucid, just some anomaly happens. Some anomaly happens. You see a pig flying. You say, wow, I must be dreaming. Oh, I am dreaming. Boom. And then you get so excited you wake up. But very often it's an anomaly. Or as Tsongkhaba says, the easiest way to have a lucid dream is have a nightmare. Easiest way. And it's just so, it's so creepy, so weird, that you think, I must be dreaming. I am dreaming. Bye-bye dream, and then you get out. So when you have a lucid dream catalyzed by having a nightmare and then recognizing his dream, it tends to be a very short lucid dream. Because the first thing you want to do is escape. And you do. You just wake yourself up. Oh, I don't have to put up with this. I'm out of here. You know? But there's the point. The classic way is realization of emptiness first and then realization of rikpa. And what does happen on occasion is realization of Rikpa. And then by the power of that, by the power of realizing Rikpa, you immediately, spontaneously, effortlessly realize emptiness. Just as, it's a strong analogy, and it comes up in Jujum Lingba's writings, that if in, a, in an instant you become lucid within a dream, insofar as you're lucid, you do actually know you're dreaming, then you know by the power of that realization that nothing in the dream exists from its own side. You know everything is empty. Even though you see all these causal relationships taking place, the pratita samudpada, dependent origination, taking place in the dream, 
you know, all kinds of causal interactions. You see that, you know that, it's obvious. But because you are lucid, you know everything there is empty. So you can't be lucid and still be grasping onto the inherent nature of phenomena. That'd be crazy. I'm, I, I'm dreaming, but I think actually things are really out there. Well, then you're not, I'm lucid, but I think things are really out there. Well, then you're not lucid, right? So there's the point. Maybe that was too much of a tangent. But as one may gradually, gradually cultivate the four immeasurables, and then great compassion, great loving kindness, great empathetic joy, great equanimity, gr uh, cultivate what's called the hoksam, the, the extraordinary resolve. Why don't we run through it just a little bit? Because we're going immediately bodhicitta, and we are, once again, going into the deep end. I think you're all familiar with the four immeasurables in principle. That the whole idea is that we cultivate these until all the barriers break down, and there really is an unconditional sense of all of these four. Right? On the basis of that, then when we cultivate great compassion, great compassion, and this is not only the aspiration that we may all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, of course, it's that aspiration, but you already had that in immeasurable compassion. But great compassion goes beyond an aspiration. It goes to an, an intent, <coughs> a resolve, a commitment, a pledge. And it does take a little bit of unpacking. So I'm not going to rush here. This, this is, if one doesn't understand these points, then bodhicitta winds up being kind of fluffy and vague kind of lip service. One needs to see the real import of what is meant by bodhicitta. It's quite awesome. And unless one understands the significance of great compassion, great loving kindness, then you don't understand bodhicitta. You just know the words. And so the resolve, the commitment of great compassion is, first of all, the aspiration, may we all be free of suffering and the cause of suffering, And I shall see to it. I take upon myself the commitment, the resolve, to see that that happens. And you've just said all sentient beings. The Buddhist worldview is no less, no smaller than the world of modern cosmology with 100 billion galaxies, each one having 100 billion to a trillion stars. And now cosmologists, astrophysicists think there are probably as many planets as there are stars. So 100 billion times 100 billion, a lot of planets we can imagine. Chances are, a lot of them are populated. And that is the Buddhist view. Countless sentient beings throughout the universe in countless galaxies, because that's the term, billion-fold world system. Sounds a little bit like a galaxy. And so, when cultivates this, aspiration and then the resolve that I shall free each one, all sentient beings, in all realms of existence, not just human beings, all realms of being, all the six realms, I take upon myself the commitment, the promise, in the presence of all the Buddhas, I shall free each one. And it comes back to the, the meaning of the word I. Who, who is the referent? Who is this person that just talked on this utterly extraordinary resolve? 
if the referent that I take upon this upon myself, if the, the sense of identity, the person who's just made that pledge, is a 40-year-old woman, 60-year-old man, and so forth and so on, who's going to be dead possibly in a few minutes, definitely within a few decades. Well, this is just silly. This is like me bringing out my, my checkbook and saying, hey, Paolo, would you like a, a check for a billion trillion dollars? I can write that many numbers. Here, how many, how many trillion dollars would you like? I can just write lots of numbers. Here, have a check. He smiles at me like, you're crazy. Why are you wasting a check? Everybody knows you don't have that kind of money. So why don't you just stop fooling around? You'd like to write, I could write to it. Want to write me a check for $100? That I would take seriously. A billion trillion? Come on. It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. It's silly. I mean, it's, it's just kind of like a lie. I mean, it's fraudulent, actually. Like giving a person a check for a trillion dollars. I mean, everybody knows you're lying, but still, why lie? You know? That doesn't make any sense. If the referent is you, limited within this little short story called a human life. And even if we go beyond that, when we say, in my past life, I was such and such. In a future life, I will be such and such. Of course, it's not this person, the 63-year-old person who had a, per a past life. This person here doesn't have another body. I've only got one body. So as soon as we speak in that context, who were you in your past life? What kind of a body did you have in your past life? The referent of I had that existence can't be the 63-year-old guy because I've got only one body, right? So the referent for that has to be referring to or is imputed upon the basis of the substrate consciousness because that continues all the way through. So, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. From the perspective of substrate consciousness, previous life, previous life, previous life, on and on and on. Well, that makes sense. But now if we, if we stop there and say, okay, I'm going to designate myself on the basis of my substrate consciousness with who knows how many past lifetimes. And from that basis, I shall liberate all sentient beings. That means everybody's got an incredibly long wait before I can get to them. Like, you know, stand in the queue. Oh, you're one trillion trillionth. Well, I'm sorry, it's going to be a long time, but I will get to you. But, you know, I'm like a snail crawling through the universe. Bink, helped you. Bink, helped you. I've got only one trillion zillion, gazillion left to go. Bing, I get you. That doesn't make any sense either. It's not realistic. Right? Too long. Too long. The queue is too long. The queue in, in British, the line in American English. The line, you know, stand, step in line. Step, stand in line. Step, I got, I'll get to you, but it'll take a long time. Right? I think you will see where it's going. The referent, when one makes that resolve, if it's actually from the heart, if it's actually sincere, you really mean it, can only be Rikpa. It's only from that perspective that such a resolve makes any sense, that it's not simply an exercise in megalomania or sheer idiocy. It's only from that perspective. So this is why it said that when you cultivate great compassion, the Rik, this Buddha nature, that is fit to follow the Buddha, to, to fit to follow the Bodhisattva path, it's aroused. It's kind of like it stirs. It's like coming coming to somebody who's slumbering, and shaking them by the shoulder. Say, wake up, wake up. When you, from your conscious mind, located as a young woman, middle aged middle aged woman, and so forth and so on, from that's our platform. Thinking that's we, and when, from this platform, we 
to say, I make this resolve to liberate all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering. We know it doesn't make any sense here. It doesn't make any sense on the substrate consciousness level. It's like we're calling down to our Rikpa and saying, hello, Rikpa, I just made a promise on your behalf. So wake up, get cracking, because I'll never be able to do this without you. I'll never be able to do this from any perspective other than Rikpa, because that's the only way this makes any sense, that this is a sane resolve. So the great compassion actually wakes up arouses into action your Buddha nature. How interesting. So already there is something of this fusion, this interaction between wisdom and compassion. And then from that, great loving kindness, great empathetic joy, great equanimity, and then this culminating in what is called the haksam, the extraordinary resolve. And the extraordinary resolve is a resolve to liberate all sentient beings from all suffering and the causes, and to bring each one to perfect awakening. And you're calling all the Buddhas as your witness. This is my promise to the universe. I shall do this. Now we know how that's sane and all the other ways that it's not sane. And then here's where we go to Bodhicitta. It's not quite there yet, but it's resolved. Coming from an awareness of the enormity of suffering in the world, but an awareness also that that suffering is not inevitable, it's not necessary, that we are not hardwired from our, the very core of our existence to suffer forever, but liberation, awakening, is a possibility. So there's that resolve, this extraordinary resolve, to liberate all sentient beings from suffering and the cause of suffering, bring each one to liberation, to awakening. And then the question mark comes up, Okay, it's a good resolve. Very, I mean, to say it's noble is a vast understatement. And then how on earth is that possible? How can, how can this actually occur? How could it be possible? And then only one answer comes. The only way that actually could be done is if we ourselves first achieve perfect awakening, the awakening of a Buddha, completely unveil our Buddha nature. So all of the wisdom, the compassion, the power of our Buddha mind, our Buddha, Buddha nature, is manifested. Of course, all, obs all obscurations vanished. And from that platform, the platform of being an awa a fully awakened one, well, now you can do it. Then you can do it. And so that's bodhicitta. That finally is bodhicitta. That aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. So, Place this in a little bit of context. Atisha <laughs> commented he, he was sometimes quite ironic with the Tibetans, uh, being this grand master, you know, one of the greatest sages in all of India, and coming to this really very backward area. Tibet was a very backward country in the 11th century. Not much civilization, not much culture, and its, its religion, it, Dharma had really been beaten up by a lot of suppression that took place. And so it was quite something that he spent, what was it, 17, 13 years, which, 17? 17 years there. L spent the rest of his life there. He pledged to come for a much shorter time, and then he just found he couldn't leave. There was always more to do. So he spent the last 17 years of his life in, in, in Tibet. But he, would, he was not afraid of using irony, perhaps even a bit of sarcasm. And he said, only the Tibetans know how to develop bodhicitta without cultivating 
loving kindness and compassion. He was being ironic. And emphasizing that, again, it's all very well to say the words. You know, I shall achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. That's all very well, but if, it does, if it's not that aspiration, that resolve is not springing from very deep cultivation of the four immeasurables, it's pretty thin in terms of that developmental route. <coughs> On the other hand, as we see in these five mind treasures of Dujumlingba, certainly cultivate a wholesome wholesome motivation. There are, there are preliminary practices there for sure. There is some cultivation of bodhicitta to be sure, but everything is oriented. Just the whole force of this is all going to this practice, the shamatha, either settling the mind or shamatha without a sign. It's saying, go for it. But clearly, you know what this is all about. This is not just for your own little peace, just for a little bit of security and so forth. You know what this is about. But now absolutely go for it. Achieve your shamatha. Now just keep on going. Achieve your vipassana. Now keep on going breakthrough to Rikpa, and now relative bodhicitta comes out of that. He said, if you think you need to cultivate relative bodhicitta somewhere else, it's like being in, in the middle of the ocean and think you need to look someplace else for water. Okay? So, one quote by Atisha, another quote by His Holiness, my religion is cultivating a good heart. For him, quite clearly, he embodies, he teaches, he lives and breathes. The very essence of Dharma is being having a good heart. Now, are there any dangers of cultivating shamatha without having cultivated very deep compassion? And the answer is for sure. Absolutely. Yes. It can be a danger. It's the danger of succeeding. And that is if you, as you're more and more deeply cultivating shamatha, and you taste that sense of serenity, the stillness, the luminosity, let alone you actually achieve shamatha. Your whole mind dissolves in the substrate consciousness. And you're experiencing this just ongoing flow, and it doesn't, it doesn't wear out, it doesn't get stale, of this bliss, the luminosity, the non-conceptuality. If you've not already cultivated a real genuine compassion before then, not cultivated a very strong aspiration to achieve enlightenment, and not just achieve shamatha, then the chances are really quite good you'll get stuck. One story of a, uh, a yogi, I think it was back time, when was it? A long time ago. Who was the great, uh, great chut master? Machi Lavkiduma and then her teacher? Badama Sangi, exactly. Badama Sangi, long time ago. But he knew of one, there was one disciple that was practicing shamatha. He was training in the shamatha. And this fellow went off, was meditating, and then years went by. And then finally, Padamba, Padamba Sangi, this great, great, great master, encountered the student of his who had practicing shamatha and kind of disappeared. And he said, well, what happened? I kind of lost track of you. What, what you been doing? And he said, well, I achieved shamatha. And Padamba Sangi said, yeah, but what did you do then? He said, I just enjoyed it. And Padamba Sangi just burst into tears. Said, oh, what a shame. That's all. You miss the whole point. So that's the danger, that you'll just go into your own little separate piece, your own little temporary separate piece with samsara. And, and of course, it won't even last. And then there's the issue of the realization of emptiness. So we, we, we had this ultimate bodhicitta teaching right from the beginning. 
and it's possible with some degree of shamatha, full-blown shamatha, all the better. As one is investigating the nature of reality, investigating the nature of one's own identity, the identity of other people, right? and see, coming to the emptiness that upon analysis, upon this ontological probe, you just don't find anybody there objectively. You see a body, you see a mind, and so forth, but you just don't see somebody really there. And you look inside, and you see your body, you see feelings, mental states, phenomena arising, and you just, there's no one there. There's no one really you there. This can be experienced in a very different way. And there's a very well-known story from the Galupa tradition of Tsongkhaba, who, like a great Dzogchen master, teaching about Dzogchen right from his realization, giving pointing out instructions, well, Tsongkhaba had a very profound realization of emptiness. And on one occasion, he's teaching to a large group of monks, giving teachings on emptiness. And he's just teaching right out of his realization. And that tends to be enormously powerful. You know. So there he was, just like, like a flaming sword cutting through and speaking about the emptiness of all phenomena. And there was one monk among this large gathering of monks who was listening very intently. And then suddenly, this monk listening, just focusing on Tsongkhaba. Then suddenly, and he, and he suddenly... He freaks, and he, kind of, he jumps, and he grasps his collar. Like he's really just, had just a freaking out like, like this. And Tsongkhaba, being clairvoyant, he knew exactly what had happened. And he chuckled. He pointed over and said, ah, this monk from Ta Natang, this monk from Natang, it's a region of Tibet, he's just established conventional reality on the basis of his collar. <laughs> what the monk had sensed was that he was disappearing, that he wasn't there. And he was looking for something to hold on to, and the nearest thing was his collar. Oh, I've got a collar, therefore I am. <laughs> you know, I not I think, therefore I am. At least I've got something to hold on to here. You know, something firm, something that seems to be really there. And so it is said here that when you gain... So this was clearly some genuine insight that he had. And it said that now classic aphorism, and that is, if you're well prepared through the cultivation of renunciation, the four measurables, bodhicitta, if you're well prepared for the realization of emptiness, and then you do have something of a breakthrough, not to Rikpa, but to emptiness itself, some real experiential insight, when that insight dawns upon you, it will be as if you've discovered the greatest possible treasure because of rejoicing, bliss. On the other hand, if you're not sufficiently prepared and kind of prematurely, you still do break through and gain some genuine insight into emptiness. And it can happen. That you're not really ready for it, but it happens anyway. Then when you gain that insight, you may experience it as if you've lost your greatest treasure. That self of yours that you so cherished and took care of doesn't exist at all. So all of this is to contextualize the teachings both of, on emptiness, the teachings on bodhicitta, to see how profoundly interrelated they are. His Holiness was asked some years ago how it was possible for him to, in such a steady way, city after city, day after day, day after day, when he's, I've seen him many times when he's, he's had the flu, he has a cold, and he still teaches, because you know, the, the schedule is so intense. But sometimes his health breaks down a bit. And he just teaches right through it, you know, unless he's really debilitated. And so the, just up and down. But the constant is that just that joy that he emanates, that sense of well-being, that joy is just that warmth, that kindness. But the joy, you know, 
that he, just this spontaneous laughter arises so easily. And somebody just asked him, how do you, how do, you do that? How is that possible? And I'm going to fill in a little bit. And that is, if you look at his personal life, just as one individual, he's got a nice life. He's got a very you know, wonderful group of people around him, taking care of him, cooking for him, taking care of all his personal needs. He doesn't have a palace, but he has a nice home. You know, nice by Indian standards. It's pleasant. Nothing luxurious about it in, in Dharamsala. But it's nice. It's clean. Simple. Got a nice car. And then he gets to travel all over the world. So if you just look at him as an individual, he's got a nice life. You know. But he's not just an individual. Since he was 15, he's been king of Tibet. Since he was three, he's been revered by millions of Tibetans as their guru, as their leader, as their refuge. And then through the, the most terrible crisis in the whole history of Tibet, 2,000-year-old history or so, the worst, the worst crisis they've ever had, the genocide there, decimation of their culture, and so forth. And there he was. He was taking that on when he was 15 because the invasion took place in 1950. He was 15, and the people, the government, so they, they said, this is now such a a catastrophic crisis that we can't leave the government in the hands of a regent because the Tibetans don't have that, even remotely, that type of reverence for a regent. He's a fill-in. He's a placeholder until the, the Dalai Lama comes to his maturity and takes the reins of government. He said, we don't have time. This is a crisis. We, we need to have somebody holding the reins of power who's on top explicitly, and it can only be the Dalai Lama, and you're 15, but I'm sorry, you're going to have to take on the reins of power now. So he became head of state when he was 15 years old. And through those 50s, it was just going from one hell realm to the next. Uh, it's, it's almost inconceivable to try to imagine what they went through in the 1950s. It's so horrific that it, it, kinda, it, do, it does defy uh, the imagination. And he was, he was the one all the Tibetans were looking to. Save us, save us. You know? And he stayed as long as he could until it just wasn't possible to stay. He, he probably would have that night been imprisoned and disappeared, like the pension line. As a little boy, disappeared, nobody knows where he is, even whether he's alive. He would have disappeared, right? So he had to flee, 1959. So more than 50 years ago. And during all that time, ever since then, the Tibetans in Tibet, let alone the 2 or 3% of the Tibetans who have escaped into exile, they look upon him like they look upon no one else. Save us. You're our refuge, right? I don't think anybody knows better than him who's not in Tibet the magnitude of suffering that went through the Cultural Revolution. It defies imagination. And the suffering that goes on. Why there are more than 100 Tibetans just in the last few years who have immolated themselves. It's an excruciatingly painful way to die. And they keep on doing it. And they're all looking to him. Help us. Why isn't he miserable all the time? Why isn't he weeping all the time? Why isn't he depressed all the time? Why is he not furiously angry all the time? All of that would be very understandable. Because the Tibetans, in this lifetime, Tibetans have done nothing to deserve that. Nothing and even remotely. They're quiet people living out in the mountains. You know, they weren't messing with the Chinese. 
So how is it possible that you, knowing the magnitude of the suffering just of the Tibetan people, let alone being who you are, and so in tune to, so, so sensitive of, so aware of the suffering of the world, not only of six million people, but of six billion, seven billion human beings, not only human beings, animals, not only animals, the world of sentient beings, not only in this planet, beyond. How is it, how is it possible for you to maintain that lightness, that lightness of being, that joyousness of being? How do you pull that off? Because we know you're not just blinking. You're not turning your eyes away. You're not ignoring the suffering of the world. How is it possible? Pretty strong question. In the Dalai Lama, this is a direct quote, he says, sometimes compassion becomes unbearable without the wisdom of emptiness. So like the mudra, the classic mudra of meditative equipoise, the left hand supporting the right, the left hand symbolizing wisdom, the right hand symbolizing compassion. One has to support the other. Otherwise, the compassion may be just... Overwhelming, unbearable. That's what they actually call it. Unbearable compassion. But if it's really unbearable, why don't you just go into meltdown and need to go to a psychiatric clinic you know, for severe, acute, debilitating depression? Well, you know, realization of emptiness, that'll do it. That's what supports it. The wisdom supports the compassion. And then out of that comes this unbelievable lightness of being. So the aphorism here is alternately practice giving and taking. Tong len. Tong len. Tong literally means to send, and the len is receiving or taking, taking in. Taking in is a nice way of phrasing it. So that's what we did in this one brief meditation. And it is a combination, an integration of these two sublime virtues of love and kindness and compassion. And so with the compassion arousing the aspiration, may you be free. And then the classic visualization is imagine the suffering and the causes of suffering symbolically. It's just like a veil of light, a veil of darkness, of smoke, of gloom, enveloping the individual, the community, the region of the world, where we know there's a great deal of intense suffering, or whole realms of existence where there's great suffering. And then as one practices the len, the taking in, the taking in, the taking upon oneself, then as the arousing the aspiration, may you be free, then one imagines that veil of darkness lifting. Now, in the classic practice, which I didn't teach this time, I wanted to teach it with one variation so it didn't get too heavy too quickly. In the classic practice, you're visualizing this orb of light symbolizing your Buddha nature, primordial purity, which as we have read before, cannot be dimmed, cannot be polluted, does not get worse with samsara, cannot be improved by cultivating virtue. It's transcendent. It's primordial, primordially pure. Symbolizing that in this visualization is this orb of light. And so the classic practice is as you are attending even to the whole, all sentient beings on this planet or whole realms of existence, imagine the darkness of their suffering and the underlying causes of hatred, of greed, of delusion, of all manner of mental afflictions and evil actions, and imagine this all being siphoned in, drawn in, that great, great big suction 
drawing it in and having this all come into your heart. Right? And they're dissolving. They say like a, like a down feather dropped into a fire. So then you don't even see any ash. It's just, it's gone, right? So you imagine all that darkness. Finally, the darkness of all sentient beings. All coming into this little nucle nucleus of light at the heart. Which is infinite in capacity. And is drawn in and it's extinguished. So that is a very powerful practice. But it can also be just overwhelming. So... To teach that to beginners, never done this practice at all, may be a bit too heavy. And that's why, as an introduction, that's why I taught it this way the first time. Okay, don't bring it all into the heart. That might just give you a heart attack. Probably not literally, but metaphorically, it just might feel, this is, this is like way too heavy. You know? So go into it a little bit gently. So at the beginning, you may just, as you're taking Imagine you're taking it off of them and that darkness then just evaporating. Okay? Then you don't feel this incredible intensity coming into your own heart. Right? And then for the, for the tong, for the sending forth, the sending out or the giving, then that's of course the time for the cultivation of love and kindness. <coughs> and now something that's not dangerous at all, then symbolically you imagine this light, this light of purity, of joy, the light of bodhicitta, the light of but it's just itself, emerging from, from your heart and then suffusing, embracing, purifying and bringing the person who is the object of your attention to the joy and the satisfaction they seek. So that's the essence of the practice. Traces back to Shantideva, so a good 1,200, 1200 years, and before that you'll find, you'll find its basis in the Mahayana Sutras. So this is the essence of this practice. Go on just a little bit more. I think, yeah, I'll just give one more and then we'll stop. Because uh, there are a couple of questions here. I had a very memorable experience years ago. Uh, in Dharamsala, it was 21 years ago, 1992. And we had a wonderful Mind Life meeting, a Mind Life Institute meeting with His Holiness, a group of scientists, on sleeping, dreaming, and dying. Outstanding conference. The book that came out of it, edited by Francisco Varela. I think it was a very good book. But just prior to the meeting, we'd arranged with the private office of His Holiness uh, that is, we, refers to some really world-class neuroscientists. Uh, Francisco Varela, alive and well at that time. Richard Davidson, now very well-known. Cliff Saron, who since then has become the principal investigator for the Shamata Project. Um, and I'm groping for the name right now. I'll get it later. Another neuroscientist. He's a good friend of mine. Just right now, it's tip of the tongue. But he's not as well-known. He's a very good neuroscientist. Um, I think that's it. And then I was the, the interpreter and cultural liaison between the two. We received the, the permission from His Holiness to go up into the mountains above Dharamsala, way up, about an hour and a half hike above McLeod Ganj, where the Tibetans live, where there are yogis who have been living up there, some of them for 20, 30 years. Then Tutovla was still there. Yeshi and he'd been there for like 30 years at the time. He was, like, he was the senior most yogi up there, extraordinary yogi. And others, oh, the youngest one, who'd only been there for five years or so, in his little hut. Yanlam Rimba was there. He'd been there for like 25 years. He was my teacher. And there were others ones. I think Gen As maybe Gen Asam was still alive. I think so. He had been doing stage regeneration practice. But these really formidable yogis, really hardcore. Um, and so we were, with the encouragement of His Holiness, 
Uh, then we hiked up the hill, and we were all carrying a whole bunch of equipment, video screens and EEG and you know, state-of-the-art portable EEG, uh, neuroscience equipment, technology. And uh, we had, our agenda was to try to, the scientists wanted to understand what they, whatever they could by way of their neuroscientific methods, um, what happens when people are really very deeply cultivating compassion, and what happens when they're really de developing shamatha, samadhi. And so there were a lot of very rich experiences that came out of that, um, that trek up the hill and the engagement with the various yogis, a number of yogis, maybe a half dozen or so. But one of them I remember very vividly. He was the youngest one up there. He'd only been there for five years or so. Got a new kid on the block, still in the experimental stages of his, of his retreat. And uh, he'd been actually practicing shamatha a lot. And we asked whether he'd be willing to collaborate with us because we were interested in his cultivation of compassion. And the scientists wanted to study this, not only neuroscientifically, but behaviorally. And one of the measures they had for that, or techniques, was, and this is what they did, with his permission, so it was all full disclosure, we, never, we didn't pull any sneaky things on them. Uh, we told him what we do, and he said, yes, I'm happy to do that. And what the scientists then set up on a tripod was a video screen, an LCD screen, on which they played a video, rather small screen. This is 1992. They played a video that had been recorded five years earlier, 1987, when there was an, an uprising in Plaza um, demonstration. And they showed the video of the police, the military, beating the monks mercilessly with clubs. And the monks would just cower, and they just beat them beat them and beat them. And somebody clandestinely took the video, and it got, obviously got out of Tibet. And so that's what the video was all about, just showing these monks being savagely beaten. When all they were doing, they, actually, they weren't doing anything violent at all. It was a peaceful demonstration, but this was the retaliation. Uh, the governor of Tibet said, if you, if, you, if you demonstrate, we'll kill you. Just so there's no surprise here, we'll kill you. And that's pretty much what they did. But this video just showed them being beaten savagely. And so... <coughs> This video was shown, and, while the, and, the, and the monk agreed to watch the video of monks just like himself being beaten in this way. And while he was watching the video, and we're all watching it with him, there was a video camera on his face. And we had some experts there who were very, very good at reading facial expressions and inferring emotions based upon facial expression. Paul Ekman is world class in this regard. And so the video was played with the video camera on his face as he watches the video. <coughs> and of course, <clears throat> all of us, the scientist and myself, we'd already seen the video. We were most interested in what's his, gonna, his, what's his response going to be when he watches this really tragic footage. And the monk sat through the video, and his face was about as expressive as mine is right now. Couldn't read anything. He was attentive. You know, not, he's not bored. But you didn't see anything. You didn't see tears. You didn't see grimacing. You didn't, you didn't see anything. He just watched. And the scientists were somewhat perplexed. Like, we're expecting, I mean, that was really rough what you just saw. So the video came to an end. <coughs> and the scientists asked this monk, what were you experiencing? I mean, we couldn't see anything in terms of facial expression. There was nothing to read. Uh, what were you feeling? 
when you watch this video? And he said, well, I was watching a video. I didn't see anything there that I didn't know, that, that I didn't already know was taking place. There was no news there. This is a video that was taken years ago. I was watching the video of something that I already was aware of. But I'm constantly aware of far greater suffering in the world than that. I'm resting in an awareness. I'm always aware of the magnitude of suffering in the world. And this is a video of a few monks being beaten five years ago. So it didn't really shake me because there was no news. I'm aware of this all the time. I hope you understand what he meant by that. It was not apathy. It was absolutely not indifference. It was just, this is a little tiny wave in an ocean, and I've been aware of the ocean all along. So I just saw another wave. But it didn't really shake me. I was already aware. I live with that awareness. So this is seeing through the episodes that come and go. And they may be dramatic, they may be powerful, they may be incredibly tragic. What's happening in Syria right now, all of the above. But it will be over. And so one way or another, the killing will subside. There'll be, the refugees will find some way to assimilate. And then there'll be another one. We don't know where it's going to be, but there'll be another one. And then there's going to be a natural calamity, and then there's going to be this. In the meantime, life goes on, and death goes on, and sickness and aging goes on. And so the cultivation of compassion in Buddhism is witnessing, being very attentive to the episodes here or there, the episode of those monks being beaten. Attending to it. But not being caught up and carried away by that. Not having the mind collapse down into that episode and then being overwhelmed by it. But realizing there's an undercurrent, the suffering of change, wherever there's attachment, wherever there's attachment, it's only a matter of time before the suffering will manifest from the seeds of attachment. And that's everywhere. It's, you, it's everywhere. And underlying that, wherever there's the grasping onto body and mind, the I, me, mind, wherever that is, in that, in throughout, throughout the entire universe, wherever there is that delusion, that misapprehension, that grasping, suffering is there. And so it's much, much deeper than this compassion that arises as an episode in response to an episode and then tapers back, tapers back. It's constant. It's always there. So when it reaches to that depth, then it has to be tempered. If it, it may be tempered by realization of rikpa, that would do it. That would do it. It may be tempered by realization of emptiness. That would do it. at the very least, temporarily, as a first aid, so to speak, as first aid, mm. shamatha, having some refuge, having some place of peace, some place you can have a little bit of a time out from continually engaging with the world and all of its suffering and all of its mental afflictions and so forth, some place, a little bit of retreat to restore your balance, to tap into inner resources and then venture forth again, at least that, at least that, that would be really helpful. Emptiness realization, much better. Realization of Rikpa, now you're in good shape. 
blessed to become a Buddha. So that's a little introduction to sending and receiving. In order, there's the first one here. Oh, yeah, so quickly. We have a couple of minutes. In my book, Stilling the Mind, I mentioned that the Vajra essence was essentially downloaded from the Dharmakaya. Yes, and this mind treasure. Yes, that's true. Next, you mentioned that Dujong Lingba received in a vision as a mind dharma. Yes, true. Did these visions appear to Dujong Lingba in his, in, in, in his space of the mind, or did these visions manifest way beyond the space of the mind? Well, he says, actually, he answers that question, so I don't have to speculate or try to do some special interpretation. He speaks about how he tells exactly what catalyzed it. It's really wonderful that it's so transparent and candid. He said he was practicing state regeneration, and through that, that catalyzed is breaking through to a realization of Rikpa, and out of that pure vision that comes spontaneously from Rikpa, uh, then there arose this whole spontaneous display. So he'd already had a good deal of practice. He said, I practiced state regeneration a bit, he said. It's very prime, and, but it comes directly out. He was a vidyadara at that time. He had already had, he had gained realization of Rikpa at that time, and this vision spontaneously arose out of his pure vision of Rikpa. So that's where it comes from. He was kind of born that way. He never had a, a human guru. Very rare in that regard. He never had a human guru. He, he says so in, in one book called Mud and Feathers, <laughs> short title. His guru is Padmasambhava, directly just having direct Padmasambhava and other great Mahasiddhas from the past, just one after another, one visionary experience after another, and getting direct teachings from these great adepts of the past, including especially Padmasambhava, the Lake Vajra, Soke Dorje. And these, those were his teachers, right? From the time he was a child. And Mandarava, she would come in and take care of him. And uh, those were his gurus. He ne never actually had a human guru. It was all just poof, downloaded that way. Quite extraordinary. So, another quick one. Oh, after this retreat, many of us will look for a local sangha and or for a teacher. But there are so many teachers out there today, and I would add right now, as a psychotherapist, I think pretty much anywhere in kind of like the Eurocentric world, you can't just say, hello, I'm a psychotherapist and start practicing. You have to have some license, right? Yeah, Australia, America, Europe, I think it's got to be the same. But you have to have some professional training. Number one, an undergraduate degree. On top of that, professional training. You have to get license, pass the exam, get license, and then you can start calling. Well, and then for psychiatrists, then all of medical school and so there's credentials, and you'll go to jail, or you get at least fined if you say, I'm a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist, and you don't have the credentials or the training. Well, anybody, including frogs and turtles, can go, I'm a Buddhist teacher. I'm teaching Dzogchen. Anybody can say it, and nobody goes to jail, nobody gets fined. Any bullshitter can say, I'm teaching Buddhist meditation. And there's just no, there's no filtering at all. And this is a person who's saying, I can take you to enlightenment. I can lead you on the path to enlightenment. And no credentials whatsoever needed. All right? Anybody can do that. And anybody does. So I don't know any, any so-called profession where there's a larger gradient from people who are simply buffoons to people who are like his holy Dalai Lama, Dingo Kinsirimbochi, and so forth. It's a total spectrum there. So this is a really good question. At least, I mean, they're really crummy therapists, right? And they're very good therapists. But at least, you know, even the crummy ones have some training. They may be still crummy, but at least some bait, there's a kind of a, a scraping of the barrel. Okay, not below this. In Buddhism, there is no below this. It's all below. You can be psychotic and call yourself a Buddhist teacher. And if you get followers, then you, you know, 
You, got, you have guru, you have disciples. You can be a guru. So there are men, so many teachers today. Some call themselves lama. Some even wear robes. Some even claim they got enlightened. Yes, I know of some like that. One in particular, really. Uh, he had been practicing for 40 years and gave himself and his friends who had also been practicing that long, he, he gave himself and others honorary arhatship. He said, we've been practicing so long. He didn't quite call it that, but that's really what he was getting. He said, honorary, I mean, hell, I've been practicing for 40 years. I must be an arhat by now. And therefore, I know I still got mental afflictions and so forth. Therefore, all those who said that arhatship means you've completely purified your mind and totally eradicated irreversibly all mental afflictions, don't believe them. In other words, what Buddhists have been saying for 2,500 years, don't believe them, because that's not really possible. The more you manage them, you get a more comfortable term. You're not so bothered by your mental affliction. You kind of, you're managing the symptoms very well, and that's enough, and that's what it is in Arhat. And, hello, I'm an Arhat, because I've been practicing 40 years. Honorary degree. So people can say that, and they get away with it. Man, what bullshitters. Now, there's no other word. I mean, you know, sometimes you just have to say bullshit because that's what it is. To say it softer would be kind of like, oh, come on, don't hold your punches. That's bullshit. So they claim they're enlightened. So the question is, how do we discern between authentic teachers and teachings and those less authentic ones? It's a very good question. It's a very practical question. And what I would suggest is, if you can possibly have some personal contact with a person you trust mo most who really knows what's going on. I say like a person like Andrea. Andrea, you, you know a lot of very good teachers, and you know some who probably you would not recommend, and you probably wouldn't even want to talk about them. Because it's not fun. You know, I, I don't want to mention that person's name. I don't want to ridicule people. But when a person says that, the words are bullshit. And I don't need to say a name because that's not the point, right? So we can not even mention those people. But then when we know of authentic teachers, then we're very happy to say the name. So Andrea could tell you a number of them. I, I can tell you a number of them. And then I know other Western Dharma teachers, Ani Zamba, uh, Jetsun Tenzin Bamo. Very good, very good. And a number of others. I could give a whole list of, of Western teachers I know are really authentic. Tony Karam, he can tell you very good teachers. Anybody he recommends, very good. Lama Pema Samden down in Brazil, very good, very good. I can tell you, and that's just a little, that's a small, and each of those can tell you very good things, right? Let alone Tibetans, a whole bunch of good ones, some mediocre, some uh, who knows, you know. But within the Tibetan context, and this is just speaking in Tibetan Buddhism, the really good ones know the really good ones. So find one that you have confidence in, and then ask that person, who do you recommend? Now, not all by any means, but a fair number of really qualified, experienced Buddhist teachers write books. And then others write books, and they don't know what they're talking about. And some of them are incredibly misleading. Really, like, you want to burn them. Like, whoa, this should never have been written because this is so misleading. And I know some books like that. I'm not going to mention the title or the names. That's not my business. Not here in this context. Hmm. But if a book is written, and then you see the book is endorsed by Dalai Lama or other really, Sakitizinamuchi, Kamapa, etc., etc., you say, oh, that person endorsed this book. Well, then the author's got to be pretty good because the Lamas don't just pass out their endorsements blindly. So that's another way of checking. So that's how you kind of get, you, you identify somebody, but probably this person's pretty good, probably qualified, maybe magnificent, but at least probably not misleading, inauthentic, giving really terribly misleading teachings. That's the first thing. But then that's not enough. Then the next thing is to, if you can, seek out that person, hopefully the person's still alive. Seek out teachings. 
Seek out teachings. Listen to them. See whether the teachings make sense to you, whether they're intelligent, whether they're sound. Check out, check out, you know, the basis. This is why I keep on giving out so many notes. So you can see, what's my basis? Am I making this up? I'm a clever guy. I've got a real imagination. I could dream up all kinds of crap, but I don't want to. And so whenever I'm teaching, you know where it's coming from. And, so, and then you can see, hopefully, what, what my interpretation is and what I'm interpreting. Then that's really transparent, right? And so listen to the teachings. See the, whether they're sound. Put them into practice. See the, whether they're really helpful. And then if it's possible to have a personal relationship, see whether the chemistry is good. Because I know with some very qualified teachers, but they just, I just didn't feel much of a connection. Or I know one, and again, I'll keep anonymous, but I know a lot of my friends have trained with this person, they adore him, they revere him, he's had incredible realization. And um, I just know, based upon this person's teaching and lifestyle, not for me. Not for me. And I'm not going to say the name. It doesn't kind of matter. It doesn't matter. But I just know for myself, there's no way. I'm not going to follow any teacher whose behavior I don't want to emulate. And some may be really extraordinary, but if the behavior is such, I don't want to emulate them, I'm not going to follow them. Right? And if I see their teachings are kind of weird on occasion, I'm not going to follow it. But that doesn't discount that he's a very good teacher for other people. So then it becomes personal. Let's see if we can finish a final one. It's quick and short. This is from Rob. In the three principal aspects of the path by Tsongkhapa, he says, appearances clear away the extreme of existence. Is this the same when Padmasambhava things appear but are non-existent? No, it isn't. It's, it's, um, they're coming complementary. These are two compatible statements. Where's Rob? Looking. Oh, there's Rob. Oh, way back yonder. No wonder I couldn't see all that. Let's save that one for tomorrow. It's already 6.06. Uh, these are two very profound teachings by two incredible masters. They're not saying the same thing, but they're complementary. Let's look at that tomorrow. And right now, let's chow down. Enjoy your meal. I'll see you tomorrow morning.